This is KEXU 96.1 FM. You're listening to Pole People's Revolutionary Radio. I'm JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. And um, <clears throat> and on today's show, uh, we got a special show today. Uh, we have a representative of IWOC, the Incarcerated Workers uh organizing committee and so we're going to be talking to him in a minute um i just want to say a few words about the situation uh with the gladiator fights that's happening in california prisons uh you know the the cdc are um you know they continue with these gladiator fights and uh pitting prisoners against one another um you know families are organizing and it's it's a situation that um, has become an um, an emergency, a state of emergency, you know, and, and they're going to continue to do this until people are murdered, and, you know, then they're going to act surprised that that's occurred. So we know the story. We've seen it before. We've heard it before. We know how this plays out. And so, you know, the families are continuing to organize and to be mobilized, um, you know, throughout the prison system, and throughout the counties, and and so you know, um, you guys need to um, you know get involved with that because everybody knows somebody who's imprisoned. Everybody has friends, family members uh, on on the inside. So that's something that we have to do. So um, let me get to this interview, um, and I should have um, Eric on the line. Eric, are you there? Yeah, um, okay, um, Eric, do you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me all right? Oh, perfect. Okay, Eric, um, so we're going to go ahead and um, get to this interview here. Um, welcome to Free Aslan. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you so much. Pleasure well, th- to be here. Yeah, and thank you for being here. And, you know, I walk, I remember I walk, um, you know, being in, in behind enemy lines. I remember the the newsletter, uh, the worker, the incarcerated worker. And, um, you know, I, I seen a lot of the work that IWOC was doing and being involved in the struggles um, within the prison system. And so, you know, um, I've seen firsthand the work that you all were doing and the many prisoners that you all work with. And, and I thought that um, this is an organization that I, I would like to interview and... Um, to just educate people, the public, on what you all are doing. So let me ask um, for the listeners who don't know anything about IWOC, what is IWOC? Can you please explain? Absolutely. So IWOC is the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. It's a subcommittee of the Industrial Workers of the World, which is the radical labor union that's been around for the last hundred years or so. Um, basically, within the last decade, the IWW uh, was work that they were doing, building up to uh, work stoppages and prison strikes that we know about in the last couple of years. Um, and so the, the IWW formed the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, um, which is a subcommittee meant to, to focus on uh, not only bringing prisoners into the union, but um, 
but on all all of the uh, all of the work that is required of, of doing that and also creating um, creating space to facilitate prisoners involvement in in our movement on the outside in our movements on the outside and in um, abolitionist organizing which is uh, which prisoners having space within that kind of organizing is is historically limited and and when you say prison abolition is um prison abolitionism um you're talking about um the abolition of prisons doing away with prisons can you speak a little bit about that i think some of the listeners may be um you know some of them never heard of the the concept of an abolitionist can you speak where that comes from and what exactly you all um i think that's interesting right there yeah so we uh so a little more about our structure is we're we're a we're a local we're a local group um, that's a chapter of a national organization. Um, but as as a national organization and especially as a local group, we uh, we are about prison abolition, not reform. Mm. So, in other words, we think that any victory for us is measured in terms of the prison's inability to exist much longer hmm. um, or uh, victory for us is measured in terms of uh, a decrease in the legitimacy the, the legitimacy of, uh, of prisons as an institution and as a system um, we think that prisons are uh, an expression of white supremacy and mm, I agree a hundred percent yes yeah yeah, we we want them to end, and we recognize that historically, uh, a lot of things that looked like victories, a lot of reforms, um, have amounted to uh, strengthening and entrenching the prison system, hmm. uh, which which is not what we want. And if we look to revolutionary societies, you know, in particular, I mean. Um, you know, there wasn't too many revolutionary societies that were created around the world. Um, there was some um, that were a little better than, um, than than the capitalist societies. But there, there was not too many real revolutionary societies. You know, in my opinion, I know, um, you know, we look to 1917 in, in Russia. You know, that was a revolutionary society that was created. Um in my opinion, in 1949 in China, um, that was a revolutionary society. But even in revolutionary societies, um, there was still a need for prisons. Because um, what happens is you not only have people um, committing harm to other people, but you, you actually have the reactionary state and the supporters of the old oppressor nation um, attempting to take retake power, so there's actually, uh, in my opinion, going to be even more people in prison uh, once uh, a, a society is revolutionized because of all the reactionary forces, um, the you know the capitalist rotors and 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 at all, and the rest of them who are going to attempt to t retake power and to reorganize and to remobilize their forces. So. It's it's a tricky thing, but in the long term, I do see um, 
you know, the um, abolitionist stance of doing away with prisons entirely. And, of course, that's a long-term goal that I agree with. But I do agree with you in today's society that prisons as we know it are, um, you know, they're a product of white supremacy. And I just had this argument with somebody, you know, on social media that was, um, you know, defending prisons and, and they were getting... Uh, you know, s somehow they were offended that I was talking about uh, making a, a link, uh, linking prisons with white supremacy, and they got their ruffled, uh, their feathers ruffled. But I agree with that. That oh, wow. in today's yeah, in today's society, um, how can we deny the connection between white supremacy and the U.S. prison system when most of the prisoners we look. Um, you know, are, are brown and black people, you know, um, I know the death rows are majority uh, black prisoners, uh, the federal prison system are majority brown prisoners, I know that in the southwest states, those held in solitary confinement, torture, are brown prisoners, Chicano Nation is the, the most people tortured in the southwest, the so-called southwest states, of these false u.s borders so you know it's hard to deny that but there's still deniers there's people who you know they um you know but anyway let me get to this next question so um how did you get involved in prison organizing yourself so myself i yes. i grew up in bakersfield i grew up in um what uh Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls a prison alley, right? Oh, the, yeah, the that has the most prisons, yeah, in, in Kern yeah. County. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so I was born, and oh, and incidentally, Kern County has the deadliest police force in the nation. Yes, it does. The last time yes, I lived. it does. Um, uh, so I grew up in um, in the Central Valley. Ah, and it's a horrible was, county, horrible county to grow up in. And I did yeah. time there, too, so I know that's a very, um, you know, the, 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 the clan is very open over there in that area, man. They, they organize just, you know, it's like a, they're, they're, their chapters are like 7-Elevens over here. They're just all over the place. It's horrible. But anyway, go on, go on. It is, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a reactionary kind of place. And I, and I grew up kind of um, on, uh, on the cusp of that a little bit. I grew up in a white family. Uh, with a sort of conservative politics that that um, that baffled me as I got older, um, and I, I moved I moved to the Bay. I, I studied uh, the prison industrial complex to some extent in in school, and uh, and then I, I volunteered for a time at, at San Quentin. Um, and it, at that time, I was um, I was starting to tend toward a more radical politics and analysis of things and I got involved with uh, a group that was supporting political prisoners um, and just did letter writing nights a couple times a month um, and and from there I was introduced to IWOC um, at about the time of the 2016 prisoner strike mm. um, so I, I got involved in information nights and and uh, uh, looked for ways to support just as just as that action was taking off. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful journey you went on. And I just mentioned the political prisoners. You know, 
and I know a lot of people, you know, they point to those who were political outside of prison, who went to prison for political acts. But, you know, when I was, um, you know, in the shoe, um, you know, I came to realize that uh, shoe prisoners, because you get sent to the shoe for um, they can they for gang validation, right? So they validate you. They label you um, uh, according to their rules and guidelines and procedures. They they find um, certain categories that you fit in, and they say you are now validated as a gang member, meaning you're like officially a gang member. And the thing is, um, you know, if, if you look at that, what that means is that. Um, all them people, thousands of people were held in solitary confinement, um, not for any acts that they committed. They committed no acts. They did no harm. They did nothing. Then they were sent to these shoes, to these solitary torture centers. So if you look at that, um, they're, what they're basically saying is, because of your, um, even if you are a part of a gang, what they consider gangs, I call them youth survival groups. Because we know the main gang in, in, in the U.S. is the police, the pigs. And we also know the main gang in the world is the U.S. military. Mm. And we also know the U.S. government is the, the most powerful gang. So, you know, you know, I don't like using the term gangs, but... You know, when these you're labeled as a part of these youth survival groups, um, then what happens is you're basically put in the shoe because of your beliefs. So if you look at that, what that means is your beliefs, you're being tortured, you're being, um, you know, held in these control units because of your beliefs. So, you know, we could look at to Hitler's Germany when people were put in these concentration camps because their beliefs because they believe this because they believe these political views because they believe this and so what the california prison system was doing is they were um torturing people in mass by the thousands because of their beliefs even if they were part of these groups that they labeled as gangs who cares? They are. They believe this. They're not hurting nobody. They didn't do nothing but because of their beliefs. So these are basically thought crimes. Um, and to me, um, that's the definition of a... ...and after you because of your crimes, thought crimes. That's a political prisoner. So, you know, I, 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 I like these groups that support... Per political prisoners um however I, I would like to see that um opened up um to those held in these control units because um they're all per political prisoners but um let yeah. me yeah it's absolutely um how um so i was more heavily involved during the 2018 prison strike. Um, when I when the 2016 strike was going off, I was brand brand new. Um, but we did in that time. Um, the I know that IWAC um, created a lot of media coverage and and buzz around the strike and uh, and got it. Mm. Uh, you know, won it a 
uh, a place in the sort of media cycles, basically, mm-hmm. and, and, and was able to do the same thing in 2018. Um, in 2016, our local crew also um, went down to Merced, held a noise demonstration outside of a Merced County Jail in which a number of folks were on hunger strike with a list of demands, mm-hmm. um, some of which would eventually um, be, be met to some extent by accident. It's a longer story, but um, in the 2018 prison strike, um, the, the 20, it's been a little over a year since the, since the strike was called. Um, if, if, um, if folks, folks may remember that, uh, it was called by jail hustlers to speak, um, an inside prisoner group, um, in, in response to the 2000 and, sorry, in response to what happened at Lee Correctional on April 15th last year, mm. um, when seven people were, were locked in together and, and basically fell victim to violence that had been stirred, um, manufactured and provoked by the guards for mm. months leading yes. up to that. I remember that. Horrible. Yeah. Um, so jailhouse lawyers um, said enough is enough and, and called for a strike. And um, so a lot of what we did had to do with um, beating the drum and creating the buzz. Um, basically, you know, prisons, prisons across the country and especially in California are opaque and secretive places. Absolutely. They're, um, they're meant to, um, you know, they're meant to obscure. They're meant to, we're, we're not meant to have, we're, people going about their everyday lives are not meant to hear about a prison strike no. by design, right? So, so we have to combat that in every way that we can. Um, and so we, we created a lot of media. Um, and then another thing that we did uh, was created uh, anti-repression networks. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, we basically worked with the National Lawyers Guild to um, to uh, to and and they they did a lot of work cataloging and and helping respond to cases of repression that were related to the strike. Yeah. Um, oh. Wonderful. Yeah. No, I I remember all the work you guys did. I I remember. Um, seen the newsletters, and I think the most important work that I seen you all do is spreading the word, getting the word out, and connecting people in the inside to the outside. And to me, and I know you guys did a lot of important work, but to me, in my opinion, those were like the best things that I seen you all do that were really effective and help people on the inside to organize and to continue to resist. And um, that was very, very beautiful. I, I love that. But um, so let me yes. ask. Yeah. And helping to build it across the walls. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Cultivate. Cultivate resistance. Beautiful, mm. beautiful concept. And there's so many ways to cultivate, you know, you can cultivate in so many different ways. And, um, you know, but let me let me let me jump to this next question. What are current struggles that prisoners are involved in today? Uh, So our our local group here in Oakland focuses most like focuses on California prisons. Mm. Um, 
sometimes things will pop off in a county jail and we'll hear about it, but mostly CDCR, mm. um, mostly state prisons um, and people inside state prisons are are um, are the focus. And what's been happening in CDCR this year um, and going back into last year is is part of uh, is part of their new strategy. And we know that it's coming from the top, the, the reintegration. So basically two things, two things that, that are related, right? The reintegration of uh, special needs yards and general population yards mm-hmm. um, into the non-designated programming yards as a way to, as a way to, um, as a way for CDCR to capitalize on and stoke uh, stigma and, and historic hostility that exists between these groups. Right. Um, and, and in doing so, maintain and, and consolidate their own power. Mm. Um, and then the other is um, these, the gladiator fights. Mm. Um, Horrible. Which, yeah. And like folks may remember, listeners might remember in the 90s, this was a big scandal. Um, uh, uh, made it made headlines. There was a sixty minutes piece. Um, the the number of people were fired. Nobody was prosecuted, but there oh, were, yeah. people were fired. Um, and I remember because I was one of those gladiators in the nineties. They, you know, used to throw me out there too. So I, I remember that very clearly. So wow. yeah, okay. absolutely. And it just didn't go on in Corcoran. It went on in prisons throughout. Uh, California and because I was in a different prison and I remember them doing that and um, you know they basically come to your door they tell you you ready to go you say yes turn around cuff up strip you out cuff up take you out there and you'll be you walk out there sometimes you know sometimes there's two sometimes there's three sometimes there's five six seven eight you know they could be uh, neo-nazis or other uh, reactionary prisoners, and, you know, you, you go out there and, you know, you defend yourself. So that happened everywhere, and then they'll shoot at you <laughs> after they, you know, throw you out there like that. Then they'll shoot you with block guns and rubber bullets and, you know, spray you with, um, you know, fire extinguisher with mace. And then, you know, if that don't stop, then they'll shoot the live rounds um at at us so i I remember that but yeah absolutely that's how they did it uh horrible thing but um yeah yeah. and they made us think they made us think that it was just in corcoran right and they made us think that it was just you know a a particular culture of guards that had gotten out of hand right but we know now and um and you know people who people who are closer uh to prisons and who who you know lived that reality know mm-hmm. that um that it, it never stopped and that it wasn't exceptional and that it still isn't exceptional and so right. now um now these orders are coming down from the top and and they're they're meant to consolidate the power of cdcr and so under the guise of you know people need to learn how to get along better um folks are being set on each other and then this is meant to justify what they're calling a modified program 
which is which is effectively a lockdown, group punishment um, for folks who have been set on each other in one of these dog fights. Yeah, and what happens on modified programs is the guards actually get paid more money because now they get um what's called hazard pay. So whenever mm. there's lockdown or modified programs or working in the shoe or in the holes, the guards get paid more money. So if you're gonna, if I'm gonna do the same job I'm doing, whether I'm um, calling it regular program or whether I'm calling it modified program, if I'm gonna get paid more, you know, it's like for doing the same job. That's basically what they're the the situation they're in. So of course they. <laughs> want it to be modified all the time locked down all the time um all of the above because they get more money you know it's called hazard pay so you know this is their incentive um you know some people ask why are the guards doing it? what are they and not only that they're sadistic you know a lot of them not all of them but a lot of them get into this line of work because they are sadistic just like a lot of the pigs yeah. They get into this line of work because they're sadistic, and this is a way that they can um, unleash their sadistic ide- ideas and, and thoughts and, you know, their feelings and not get in trouble for it. So, you know, and then they bet on the prisoners like like they, like people bet on dog fights or chicken mm-hmm. fights. They bet on um, prisoners' fights. And so, you know, there's entertainment, there's money incentives, there's a lot of things, uh, reasons why they do this. And this is what, and then you just got those who are, you know, have quote unquote racist um, beliefs. And, you know, they love seeing, um, you know, um, people mostly brown and black or poor people in general um, hurt each other and kill each other. And they love it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a very, very, um, very weird uh, thing that happens, but you know. Yeah, and then they, and then they can justify it on the outside. They can justify padding their budgets, and uh, and they can sort of continue with this uh, this fictional narrative of violence. Absolutely, criminals. absolutely, and they love that, and yeah. so that's why groups like IWOC and others. It's very important because um, all groups that work with prisoners, there's a lot of different organizations out here that, you know, that work um, directly with prisoners. And this is why they're um, very important because, um, you know, they, they, they help to dispel some of those, um, you know, those those narratives out there that, you know, the prison and the state and the pigs and you know, um, that they throw out there that, that, you know, that really are not true. But let me, um, let me ask you another question. So why do you think there are two plus million people imprisoned in the United Snakes? Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. And I wish that, I wish more folks across you know, this so-called country were, would ask themselves this. And, and I, think that, I think that it's for a lot of reasons. And I think it's, um, you know, it's something that, that I'm still grappling with and, and learning how to understand. But I think, that, uh, I think that one reason 
is to maintain white supremacy and absolutely. white culture. Um, uh, absolutely. I yeah. would agree. I think that, yeah, the, the United States, like, is uh, through and through from its inception, like, a white supremacist settler colony. And, mm. um, and it, it requires prisons to maintain that. And prisons also offer um, this actually really thin, like, ideological and moral cover. Because we're meant to believe that people in prison are... Uh, are deserving of it in some way, but that's not the case at all. It's to maintain uh, white supremacy, and it's also to just maintain control, to maintain absolutely um, like the state needs violence to keep power in its own hands, and and prisons are how it can both exercise violence and sort of shield it from uh, the the sort of common understanding. Mm. Beautiful like words. In like justifications and and moralizing. Absolutely, I, I love that you um, framed it very well, and and I love the way you framed it, and 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 it is uh, comes down to white supremacy point blank, and you know um, I think that a lot of the U.S. prison system, you know. Um, you know, some people say racism, but racism is actually national oppression. Um, it's national oppression because it's the oppressed nations, the um, Chicano nation, the black nation, uh, who are mostly targeted um, by the oppressor nation. And when I say the oppressor nation, I'm talking about the white nation, you know, um, and that's what America was founded on. It's the white nation, and that is the oppressor nation. And, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of um, people, and, you know, some are liberal activist type people, and, you know, and a lot of them would say, well, you talk a lot about white people. You know, you don't like what it's not that I don't like, you know, you, you, you're white. And, and, you know, and I love the white people who commit national suicide. Those are the white people I love. You know, you commit national suicide and you're white. I love you, you know, because the thing is what you're doing is uh, you're, you know, you're bringing truth. And as a result, you're actually undermining the white nation and that's what i love and those white people they are real revolutionaries and those are comrades that i stand by and those are the white people but yeah of course if you're pushing white supremacy um you ain't have nothing coming with me absolutely you know and i will be the first to admit that but you know this is the situation you framed it very very well um it is white supremacy at its core and, you know, I, I would just add that, in my opinion, um, you know, it is national oppression um, and it's it's population control of these um, brown and black people and, and other oppressed nation people who, um, you know, are mostly military aged males. Um, you know, f we're talking 15 to 35. And those are the people who are targeted. They're targeted, um, you know, by imprisonment. And, and, you know, I wrote an article when I was in Chu, and it was titled, um, it was entitled, um, Control Units, uh, Genocide, um, Genocide, uh, it, it was something to do with, uh, what I was pointing out was that control units were actually a form of genocide, 
And imprisonment is actually a form of genocide because when you uh, capture these youth, these people, um, and you place them in prison, uh, they're no, no longer able to repopulate. Um, they're, they're no longer able to have children. And um, that's one of the factors of genocide, to prevent births. Um, you're basically killing them by giving them life in prison. That's one of the criteria of genocide. You know, you're targeting certain segments, uh, certain nationalities. That's one of the criteria of genocide. And um, you're abusing them or turning them mentally ill or killing them. And that is criteria for genocide. And that's exactly what happens with imprisonment. You know, people are imprisoned. It's affecting them mentally. Um, sometimes it's killing them because they die in prison. Sometimes the guards or others will murder them. Um, bottom line is they are no longer um, um, able to resist or to reproduce. And these are criteria of genocide. So I, I would agree that, um, you know, um, that's exactly. And, and when we look at who is doing this, it, it's it's the oppressor nation, so it is the white nation as a whole. And, you know, why are they doing that? Like you said, to uphold white supremacy, to uphold the status quo, because we're not seeing millions of whites being imprisoned. We're not seeing that. Why aren't we seeing that? Well, it would undermine what they're trying to do to uphold white supremacy. They need these uh, neo-Nazis. They need these militia groups. You know, these are... Um, you know, these are um, uh, forces, um, they're kind of on standby. These are, you know, if there is a civil war, who do you think is going to come running um, to help the military and the police and the state? It's going to be the white militias. So they need them. This is why they don't target them. But if we had uh, hundreds of brown militias, black militia groups, um you know, we wouldn't be able to do nothing. They'd label us gang members and they would destroy us quick. So, you know, people try to do it and they might let them do it for a while. But if it took off like the white militia movement does, um, there's no way we would be able to get away with that. Just like, um, you know, um, and, and that's a product of white supremacy. They're not going to allow anything that threatens them that threatens their grip on power, they are not going to um, allow that. And so I'm glad that you um, you have a very um, precise um, assessment of, um, is very, very clear uh, of what the situation is with mass imprisonment uh, and who's behind it and why they're doing it. And I love that. Uh -huh. And those are very powerful um, words that you had about that. You know, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And like circling back to what you said about political prisoners earlier, like I think like if, if, the, given that that's the reality of incarceration and that's why so many people are locked up and that's, that's basically why prisons exist and what they exist for. Like, yeah, I think, I think um, it's important to me personally. And I know that um, I know that I'm, um, you know, I don't, I don't speak for the group in saying right. this, but it's, it's definitely um, my, my take and, and something that's on my heart that, that, um, that all prisoners are political prisoners, mm. at least in that sense. Wow. That, yeah. um, that Excellent. Excellent.
Excellent analysis on point. And um, let me just get this last question in, and, and we're going to sign off on this. Let me ask you, um, Eric, um, how can people contact you to get involved in these struggles that uh, IWOC is um, engaged in? So we, we're on social media. We, uh, we, we've got a Facebook, uh, and both, both our local and uh, the national organization have social media accounts. So um, definitely follow IWOC uh, on Twitter, and I think I believe that's at IWOC uh, underscore IWW. Um, and then locally, you can uh, if you want to hit us up directly. If you want to maybe uh, volunteer at our one of our jail support nights, um, we do. Um, at every about every week now. This has been. Um, a couple of our dedicated local crew have built, um, over the last year and a half or so, have built our uh, our jail support program. No, two years. Two years. Over the last two years, have built our jail support program to now folks are going out to Santa Rita once a week to provide uh, unconditional material support to everybody getting out. And so that's pizza, um, smokes. Pizza? Wait a minute. Did you say pizza? I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. That's excellent, Eric. I love what you guys are doing. I support you guys all the way. I'm always here. And this is why I wanted to interview somebody from IWOC. I think you're doing very important work. And as I said, I think you have an excellent analysis of uh, mass incarceration, why it's happening. And and, and I want to thank you. And um and so um and so with that said, did you give your email or um, just you want them to just... No, the email, hit us up at iwoc, I-W-O-C dot oakland at gmail.com. So Perfect. I-W-O-C dot oakland at gmail.com. Perfect. Perfect, Eric. Well, thank you once more for coming on to Free Aslan, and, um, and I'll have you back again um, with any updates and any future struggles. And thank you so much for being on the program tonight, Eric. Uh, thank you, JV. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Hope to be on again. Absolutely. Okay. And we're going to take a short break. Um, we're going to listen to a song uh, right now. So just kick on back. We'll come back from the break and we'll have a discussion on the book Chicano Power and the Struggle for Aslan. And here goes the song. I belong to 
And this is KEXU 96.1 FM, Pro People's Revolutionary Radio. This is JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. And next, I'm going to talk a little, I'm going to read a little bit from the book, Chicano Power and the Struggle for Aslan. So one of the things, the subchapters I'm going to read is about nationhood. And, you know, somebody can't just claim I'm a nation, we're a nation. There has to be specific criteria. You know, um, decades ago, Stalin created this criteria on nation, you know, because rev- uh, societies around the world were uh, debating with each other on what is a nation. What, you know, how can the, the you know, Kazakhstan say they're a nation and, you know, U- Uzbekistan say they're not a nation. I mean, what is the... so? Societies around the world needed a definition. The, the world revolutionary movements came together and said, you know, we need a definition. What is a nation? What criteria? And there was a criteria came out, and it was based on territory, language, economy, and culture, uh, and psychological makeup. And these criteria, these points, um, if a people, um, you know, met these points, they are a nation. And I'm going to read the subchapter of Chicano Power and the Struggle of Aslan, and it goes as follows. In order to fulfill the definition of a nation, a people must meet certain concrete historical conditions. It is not simply a matter of a group of people claiming to be a nation, as some have erroneously done with identity politics. The national question is a scientific development which Comrade Stalin defined very well. And quote, 
a nation, he stated, quote, a nation is a historically evolved, stable community of language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a community of culture. In section one, we presented the historical development of the Chicano nation's origins. In this section, we will look more closely at the national character characteristics of the Chicano nation. The material conditions that make up Aslan are distinct from the material conditions of our Mexicano ancestors. Our interaction and struggles under American imperialism have also been a major factor in our distinction as a people. Our existence even through the repression that has been unleashed on our people by the oppressor nation since our birth has also created contradictions that have both helped and hurt the development of our nation. While sections of our nation have been bought off, other sections have been severely repressed, imprisoned, and even killed. Section 1, Territory. Aslan was the land of origination that was said to be north of the Valley of Mexico. It is well known that many indigenous peoples traveled throughout the Americas for many different reasons, intermarrying many other tribes and migrating seasonally in some cases. The large indigenous population on both sides of the Rio Bravo formed the primary basis of the emerging Chicano nation. Spanish colonization in the region mixed in the Spanish and other Europeans as well as African slaves. The Aztecs are believed to be the first to stably occupy this region. Aslan was the historic homeland of the Aztec people who would become Mexicanos and later Chicanos. It was from Aslan that the Aztecs migrated south to build the Aztec capital Tenochtitlan. Although the precise geographic location of historic Aslan has not been located, most scholars and historians agree that Aslan is in today what is called the Southwest United States territories that the United States stole from Mexico. California, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, and parts of Wyoming, Colorado, and Oklahoma. Evidence of Aztec culture is still being found today in states as far out as Kansas and Oklahoma. In 1968, the Chicano poet Alurista resuscitated the concept of Aslan, and again the Chicano Youth Liberation Conference of 1969 brought the concept to the people. The liberation of Aslan, our homeland, is what Chicanos are currently struggling for. Most recently, an influx of Central and South American peoples have arrived into long-held Chicano barrios. Initially arriving as part of national minorities, many of these people have also grown up identifying as Chicanos themselves. According to the U.S. Census, Raza continue to be the fastest growing population in the United States because of migration and high birth rates. The Raza population grew from 53% from 1980 to 1990 to 58% from 1990 to 2000 and 44% from 2000 to 2010. The data from the 2010 census confirms the growing population of Raza both in Aslan and in the United States overall. According to the April 2010 census, the total U.S. population at the time was 308.7 million, while Raza population was 50.5 million. This is up from 44.6 million in 2006, and the 2010 census predicted it will reach 133 million in the year 2050. One in four babies born in the United States today are Raza. One in two born in Texas and California are Raza. The highest concentration of Raza today remains in the quote-unquote Southwest. States known to be the Chicano homeland continue to have the highest number of Chicanos and continue to grow as every year we are replenished 
with new births and more waves of migrants ensuring the presence of the future of our nation. <clears throat> the, uh, Stalin wrote, this is the section on language, S Stalin wrote, there is no nation which at one and the same time speaks several languages, but this does not mean that there cannot be two nations speaking the same language, unquote. In putting together this book, we looked at Spanish, English, and Spanglish as candidates for the national language of Aslan. We have concluded that the common language for Aslan is, in fact, English. As counterintuitive as that may be to some, of course, many Chicanos do speak Spanish, and many also speak Spanglish or Calo. But the only unifying language across all generations of Chicanos is English. To include a few facts on this, we're just going to talk about people of Mexican descent because they are most studied and make up the vast majority of the Chicano nation. It's, a, it's possible people from other countries show very different patterns, but this seems unlikely. First-generation Mexican migrants may not speak much English, but they still fall into the category of national minority. One doesn't become Chicano simply by crossing the border. They are not yet assimilated into the Chicano nation, as we wrote in Section 1. These Mexican nationals identify with their home country and are often sending money back to support their family who still live abroad. In 2011, 35% of Mexican-origin people in the United States were foreign-born. They virtually all spoke Spanish and only one-third of Mexican migrants spoke English proficiently on linguistic assimilation. Mexican nationals start off way behind among the foreign-born in the United States, but by the second generation, they catch up with Asians and Europeans. Third-generation Mexican migrants, on the other hand, are mostly speaking English only. In 1990, 64% of third-generation Mexicans' children spoke only English at home. In 2000, the equivalent figure had risen to 71%. Youth born in Mexico who migrate with their parents at a young age do assimilate quickly into the Chicano nation. These folks are disadvantaged in school but learn English quickly and end up not strongly identifying with their home country. Many even end up forgetting the Spanish as they assimilate. Economy. The economy of the Chicano nation began to develop in the 1800s with the merchants, artisans, and ranchers, many of whom were given land grants by the Spanish colonial government as part of the development of New Spain. This economic activity was further stimulated by the injection of American capital. The introduction of mines and agriculture, business and industries dramatically changed economic relationships. Opening up trade with the expanding United States ensured that this economic growth continued right up to the U.S. war on Mexico. The revisionists will say the Chicano nation did not develop economically because of the overbearing domination of U.S. imperialism. But this is an overestimation of the economic independence of the majority of the world's nations who live in a state of neocolonialism today outside of U.S. borders. In his study of underdevelopment in Latin America, Andre Gunder Frank demonstrated the dominance of those economies by Spain and later by the U.S., which led to no real national bourgeois, only a comp comprador class that exists as an enabler of imperialist plunder. This is why today's rising bourgeois nationalism in Bolivia emerged from the likes of shoeshine boys and cocaleros, and they face much resistance from the imperialists. 
Earlier, we mentioned the failures of Mexico to take advantage of the land reform after the revolution, as many feudal countries in Europe and Asia were able to do. This had much to do with the influence of emerging U.S. imperialism to the north and its influence on the Mexican nation. So we should not mistake the nominal independence of third world nations under imperialism as reason to deny the national existence of Aslan. The main classes of the Chicano nation are the bourgeois, petty bourgeois, semi-proletariat, and the lumpen. The bourgeois are the firm supporters of U.S. imperialism, just as the bourgeois in power in most third world countries today are. These are brown, proud patriots of the United States, and many of these vendidos are part of the state apparatus. The Chicano bourgeois are big business owners, corporate CEOs, and many are included in the political and bureaucratic strata of U.S. imperialism. Their base of support lies in the Chicano bourgeois intellectuals and politicians, military, capitalists, and social bureaucracy, including many clergy. The bourgeois have a hand in not just keeping Chicanos and other raza in a semi-colonial state, but also in the oppression and exploitation of third world nations around the world. These compradores uh, aid U.S. imperialism's neo-colonialism of the Chicano nation by taking positions in the U.S. government to make it appear as if Chicanos are in a position of power. But a few compa compradores in government don't change the reality of american domination over the chicano nation Boricua, puerto rico also experienced the same thing with their use of compradores to uphold u.s imperialism within the colony mexicanos and other raza national minorities are unique in the united states for the size of their proletariat and semi-proletariat workforces in a country where those with legal working status are paid exploiter level wages the proletariat are the national minority working mostly working in agribusiness those who toil in the fields across the united states in order to put vegetables and fruits on the plates of americans as well as those toiling in illegal garment and processing factories within u.s borders these workers are most exploited in the united states today and are overwhelmingly mexicano Although they include child workers and often forced to work with no safety gear, cancerous pesticides, no insurance, and no restrooms, they are still paid significantly, significantly more today than the majority of third world, third world people. The Chicano nation's close proximity to these exploited and oppressed classes exerts a positive influence on the Chicano nation and preserves a national consciousness that is connected to Mexicanos and other exploited nations. The semi-proletariat is just a small minority of the Chicano nation. This class includes the marginally, the marginally employed, such as former prisoners, street vendors and small business hustlers who barely scrape together an income each month most but not all have cars live in homes with running water and electricity and have made improvements in their working conditions due in part to militant chicano labor struggles from decades past by virtue of the vast stolen wealth hoarded within u.s borders even the chicano nation is dominated by a new petty bourgeois Traditionally, this class includes small business owners, merchants, intellectuals, small farmers, artisans, and fishermen. In the modern U.S. economy, the petty bourgeois is dominated by small business owners and a well-paid technocratic class. 
the majority of Chicanos work in the service community, earning wages that make them a part of either the labor aristocracy or the traditional petty bourgeois. For this reason, the immediate economic interest of the majority of the Chicano nation is tied to U.S. imperialism. Yet, nation is still important. And when faced with questions of life and death, the petty bourgeois can line up strongly on the side of their oppressed nation in opposition to imperialism. <clears throat> there now exists a vast labor aristocracy, as Lenin defined it, which includes a majority of people residing in the U.S. The super profits extracted by American imperialists by exploiting third world nations are used to buy off the people here in the United States. U.S. citizens enjoy the luxuries afforded by third world exploitation while demanding more crumbs and living parasitically as the most over-consuming population the world has seen. This labor aristocracy has actually developed beyond what Lenin described in his day as a layer of workers into almost every worker in the United States receiving this privilege. The only exceptions are non-citizen migrant workers and some prisoners and released felons. For this reason, there is only a very small proletariat in the United States at this time. The first world lumping includes the street elements, the marginalized, the unemployed, and the underclass in the imperialist countries. The Chicano lumping are those who are chronically unemployed or to be specific, the unemployables. Those outside of the American economy, the criminals, mentally ill, and prisoners. This includes most of those the state labels gang members, including those living on welfare in the Chicano nation. It is the lumpen and the semi-proletariat allied with the Mexicano and other national minority proletariat and semi-proletariat who will be the backbone of a revolution. It is these classes who are the least bought off by imperialism and who have the least to lose, the most to gain from the liberation of the Chicano nation. Today we shall work to unite the lumpen of the Chicano nation with Marxism, Leninism, Maoism in order to develop the vanguard of our national liberation movement that will one day be successful in bringing socialism to a liberated Chicano nation. And... Um, and that's going to be it for tonight. Um, I just read some of the Chicano Power and the Struggle for Islam book. And, um, and this is it for tonight. This is JV, and you are listening to Free Aslam.